This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. Hello. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. I am delighted to have Roisin Kybird as my guest today. Roisin Kybird has a book out on Serpent's Tale. It is called The Disconnect, A Personal Journey Through the Internet. Roisin is from Ireland. She's an Irish writer an essayist, and a journalist whose work tends to focus on technology and culture. She has been published widely in places like the Dublin Review, The Stinging Fly, The Guardian, The Outline, Vice UK, and Motherboard, where she wrote a column about internet subcultures. The Disconnect is uh, an essay collection about life online. It's her first book. It was published back in March, and I'm so glad we had the chance to talk. Roisin Kybert lives in Dublin, and that is where she was when we spoke. She was in a tower, <laughs> like an old, like, you know, you're going to hear us talk about it, but she was in a tower in Dublin on the coast. I think she was on the coast. Anyway, she was in a tower. I've never spoken to somebody on this podcast who was in a tower. This is the first time, as far as I know. Today's episode is brought to you by the Feminist Press, publisher of Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, the new novel by Megan Milks. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body reimagines 90s adolescence, mashing up girl group series, Choose Your Own Adventures, and Chronicles of Anorexia, in a queer and trans coming-of-age tale like no other. This is an interrogation of girlhood and nostalgia, dysmorphia and dysphoria. It is a debut novel that puzzles through the weird, ever-evasive questions of growing up. Autostraddle calls it, quote, a delightfully weird and very queer reimagining of 90s YA nostalgia. Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body by Megan Milks, available from the feminist press. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast. If you're anything like me, you sometimes struggle to find the right book. Has this ever happened to you? You go to the bookstore, you wander around, you look at a million books, you walk out of the store empty-handed because you couldn't figure it out. You were overwhelmed. The same thing can happen with the uh, audiobooks, it can happen with podcasts. You know, it's just like a lot of work trying to figure out what you need. But when it comes to reading, I have some good news for you. There's a service called Scribd. 
that makes it all better. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've already read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I love Scribd. It has streamlined my reading life. It's all right there in one place. It's more efficient. It's more fun. It's more effective. I find things I didn't even know I wanted. It's right there in front of me. With Scribd, you have the world's most fascinating library at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And you get millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, all right there. It's incredible. It could not be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases involved. Automated suggestions, hand curated picks. You can easily switch between title genres and formats right there from the app. And you can discover must read new work from celebrated authors like Roxanne Gay, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get a free 60 day trial for Scribd. A 60-day trial for free. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL and get that free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash OPL and get 60 days of Scribd for free. All right, go do it and get reading. So a quick uh, book update. As many of you know, I have a novel coming out in May of 2022. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I've been giving regular updates on the publication process just to kind of bring you along for the ride. And I think last week I mentioned that we're in the galley stage. Galleys are in production. A galley is an advanced copy that goes out to the media in advance of publication. And as far as I know, last I was told, galleys are in production. Maybe they're done. I don't know. But at last I was told they are in production. And I have until the end of this month to offer my final corrections on the manuscript. Which is a a bit nerve-wracking. And in my experience, every time I reread the book, I find something. Include And this goes for, you know, my books that have already been published. You pick it up, you read it, you always find something. I don't think you ever read your own work and have a totally clean read, or at least I don't. There's always something that bothers you that you want to change. So, you know, I tell myself that this is normal. And I've been asking friends of mine what they do at this stage of the process. And more than one of them has recommended reading the book aloud. I also had someone tell me that I should read it outside of my house. Like, like go out into the public <laughs> and read it like an actual reader would read it. Go to a hotel or something and sit by the pool. Go to a coffee shop go sit on the beach or whatever. And this all seems pretty good. You know, it seems rational. These seem like wise approaches. If there's a problem, it's that they're sort of mutually exclusive. 
because if I read the manuscript outside of the house, then that probably precludes me from reading it aloud. Unless uh, I'm out in nature or something. (laughs) Maybe I should drive up into the mountains or go sit in a forest and read my book aloud. In nature. I've also been thinking that if I'm going to follow this course and try to read the book as a reader would read it, you know, I've been thinking that it would be nice to have an actual physical galley in hand rather than read it on a phone or a laptop because most people are going to read like a book, a paperback, or at least I hope so. So it would be nice to take a physical galley out in, like out into the desert or something, (laughs) sit in the sand dunes and read my book. But the thing is, I don't know exactly when my, my copies, my galleys will be arriving. I'm assuming by next week, but with Christmas coming and, you know, the post office having its various troubles, I really have no idea when the copies would arrive. And, you know, if I have to have this done by the beginning of January, then I'm, I'm running out of time. And once we get to Christmas Eve, I'm essentially checked out for a week because I have family coming into town. Both of my sisters, six kids, <laughs> like six kids total, you know, between the two of them, it's going to be a disaster. So I guess I'll have to read on my computer. Or maybe on my phone. Maybe what I'll do is I'll do two reads. I'll read it aloud here in the garage. And then I'll go out, you know, go out into the public. Go out into the public? Who says that? I'll go out, you know, outside. Somewhere. And I'll read it on my phone or something. And I'll mark down whatever corrections I think need to be made. And then I will be done with this book. And I'll have to let it go. I'll have to make peace with it at that point. Let the thing be what it is and uh, release it into the wild. Or prepare to release it into the wild. Again, my novel's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything due out in May of 2022. If you are a uh, blogger, journalist, critic, podcaster in the literary realm and you would like a galley, just email me, letters at otherppl.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Roisin Kybert is my guest. Her debut essay collection slash memoir, I don't know how you categorize this one. It's a little bit of both. It is called The Disconnect. 
a personal journey through the internet. It is available from Serpent's Tale in a beautiful edition, I must say. I really love this cover and uh, the quality of the worksmanship. Workmanship. Worksmanship? <laughs> I'm having trouble today. Anyway, I am very pleased to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Roisin Kybird, and her book, One More Time, is called The Disconnect. I was working, writing a column every week for the website Motherboard, which was Vice's technology website. Um, I think it still exists, yeah. And uh, I was writing a column for them called Forum Cop. It was, it was basically about beefs on the internet. It was just covering all kinds of online conflict. And, uh, you know, in a slightly kind of sideways way, I was talking about community a lot. I was researching online communities. And uh, I was also writing a lot of other more boring work and leading kind of a lonely, isolated life and doing all these things, which in retrospect looks so unhealthy, but which at the time I thought I had kind of all worked out like a functional life. I was going to the gym at 2 a.m. every night and staying until four in the morning. And I was barely seeing any friends and I was just working like crazy, always precarious, uh, always uncertain what was going to happen next and living almost entirely on the internet. And obviously 2016 was a pretty turbulent time on the internet, uh, and specifically for anyone paying attention to online subcultures. That whole area was going from something kind of interesting and strange and I guess quirky, although that word gets overused. But I get a lot of comments from people when I told them that I was doing this. They'd be like, oh, you're so internet-y. And I think at the time they assumed it was like, a world of cat laser eye memes and, you know, just memes and jokes. But obviously the alt-right was coming about at that time. Um, and also the less extreme version of it was just people fighting all day, every day, and people moralizing all day, every day. I mean, it's a very simple way of putting it. And I'm pretty neurotic, as people go. Um, and I am. I do have a tendency to paranoia, although less so these days, I hope. But to watch all that unfold and to be kind of quietly drifting off the earth and into all these obsessions, I didn't realize it, but I think I just lost perspective on life completely around that point. And then I got really, really depressed for weeks and weeks on end and didn't change any of these habits and ended up taking an overdose. And after that, I think, you know, we, have a, we all have ways of sort of bringing our lives to the point of catastrophe so that we can then change them. So that was definitely one of those times. So after that, I went into a course of treatment for about six weeks. One thing written about the book says I went into a hospital for six months. It wasn't nearly so dramatic. <laughs> I was just in an outpatients program for six weeks. I mean, still, that's not good. And after that, I started thinking that I needed to reframe my attitude to the internet in particular. It was when I got a sheet back, I, I did CBT with a therapist and I got this kind of diagnosis sheet back and it had things on it like 4chan, Twitter, alt-right. It, like, it was like the therapist that had to go and research all of these things just to talk about me and to talk about my problems. And it kind of occurred to me that this had just taken over my life in a really unhealthy way and I was gonna have to stop caring. Okay, stop caring about technology? Or you mean stop caring about all these like little like internet obsessions? Stop thinking about social media as reality. Right. And, and just regain contact with 
the present moment and with my own body, you know, because I, at the time I was completely denying basic things like the need to sleep or the need to eat three meals a day and see other people. You know, I was living this kind of hikikomori type existence, but to the outside world, it looked like I was doing really well because I was doing all this work, you know? Right. Well, you call yourself an emotional cyborg, a little bit of tongue in cheek, but you know, and you also, I think at one point, which I, I highlighted because I liked it so much. You call yourself a nun wedded to the internet. <laughs> and, yeah, what, dedicated to the like digital god, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, yeah. it's like we laugh and there is an element of like dark humor to it for sure. But taking an overdose, like, attempt, like making an attempt to take your own life and then going through, like you said, a course of treatment and coming to learn that you know, a lot of your depression was either caused or intermingled with the amount of time you were spending with technology. And I think with social media in particular, is that a fair characterization? Yeah. And and I wanted to, I think it was around that time, or maybe it was a little earlier that I read Mark Fisher for the first time. And he had a really big influence on me later because it struck me that a sort of mission in his work was that he was coming from a place of depression, which inherently skews your perspective on life. But he wanted to kind of put that on the table and admit to that upfront, but then branch out from that perspective in the faith that there would be other people out there feeling the same. So, you know, I think it's in Ghosts of My Life. He starts by just saying, well, this was when I became really, really depressed, but I also started asking questions about why is culture fixed this way and, you know, what forces are sort of all concentrating into the individual. I mean, he, he's coming from a place where he believes like mental illness is not on the individual. It's it's kind of socially constructed. Um, but I wanted to do something similar for... It's Okay, it's hard to say exactly what I'm talking about. I'm, I was going to say for the internet... But I, was, I could also just as easily say the entire culture that we're living in because it maps out onto like a broader, basically capitalism. I've been criticized for putting all my problems on capitalism, just blaming that and using this big vague term. But ultimately, that's what it is, isn't it? It's just particular forms of capitalism which are determining our lives in ways that, um, you know, we're so in it that we can't even notice it. Right. So my book was a chance to kind of step outside that and notice and deconstruct all of these different forces which could drive someone to that point yeah so if we're going to continue with like the uh emotional cyborg uh metaphor it's like a cyborg like this book reads like the emotional or the like the the cyborg awakening into a kind of uh, self-awareness and you describe in the book how you know in the aftermath of your suicide attempt that you realized, you know, through therapy that you have a dysfunctional relationship with technology and you wanted to try to understand that. And you also are trying to understand technology's role in the world. And, you know, this book is a lot of things, but I think broadly speaking, it's those two things. It's a, it's an, it's an exploration of yourself and your relationship with technology, but it's also a, a broader exploration of how technology and like what, is technocratic capitalism the right word? I don't even know. If yeah, I'm even... maybe or surveillance capitalism. Yeah, I like that term. How these things are playing on us all. You know, one of the one of the things you know you talk about 2016 as sort of the the low point. You know, the bottom. And you think back historically, what was going on, especially here in the states in 2016. 
you write about how you had this feeling where you were like, wow, people really do hate each other. Like men hate women, women hate men. Uh, and also like everyone is really certain and I'm not. <laughs> and man, that resonates with me. I have those feelings. That's why I quit, you know, using or at least posting on social. I still read Twitter, which I should cop to, but I just took the pressure off myself to have an, like a, an active account and participate in it, which has helped a lot. But I, I just, uh, I can't go on there and not feel like shit, you know, if I pay too much attention to the arguments and to all the posting about just grievance and injustice and anything moral, you know, that has like a moral uh, tone to it, it starts to wear me down. And uh, I think I also loved too how you talked about how you know social media is ultimately machine based and machines are built according to binary binaries right the ones and zeros or whatever code yeah. is i i think it's so obvious it's just all there in front of us but we don't stop to think because the very nature of these platforms is to keep us progressing through these kind of they're like treadmills for your feelings aren't they you know you're just being served up something emotionally charged every few seconds or maybe more a few every second so the nature of the thing is that you can't step outside. Something that's happened since writing the book is that like, I'm kind of uh, stingy with my feelings these days. I, I try to save my feelings for things in real life or things that I can get a bit more information about. And I try to slow down that, that part of the brain that makes judgments, you know, because, yeah, it's always in the service of these platforms that we come down on one side or the other. And ultimately, there is no morality to the platform itself. I, I don't think technology is neutral, but nor do I think technology has any particular morality except like like in that Facebook memo that leaked its own growth, you know, its own profit and its own growth. So whether you feel really angry about something that you consume on Twitter or whether you think it's great and anyone who says otherwise is, you know, uh, threatening your free speech or whatever it doesn't really matter to the platform as long as you make it some profit by donating your feelings. Right. You know, and, and ultimately it's not, I'm not trying to say we all become these cold, feelingless, unsympathetic people. Actually, I'm saying that we can be more sensitive and present in everyday life by reconnecting with the feelings that occur naturally. I feel like quitting social media for me help me write literature. Like I made me much more productive as a writer of books because I was taking all the energy that I was previously channeling into trying to think of what to tweet. And I put it into my, my more meaningful work and also work that, uh, profits me and doesn't profit, you know, Jack Dorsey and, and his employees, you know, like that part of it bummed me out when I thought about it too much. Like how many hours have I spent basically working for this guy for free? Yeah. You know, I definitely, yeah, I would come down on that side. Although there's a part of me that worries lately because some nice things are happening because of the book. And I sometimes think I should capture more online because that will create a memory of it, which otherwise might just disappear like tears in rain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, listen, there's always this quandary, right? Like, uh, I, I'm kind of going by how I feel. I'm trying to sift through all this information. I'm reading some of the same books that you're reading. I'm reading your book and I'm trying to make wise decisions about what I feed my head. And then there's also a part of me that sometimes 
gets into a self-critical mode and I think, well, maybe I'm just being a grump and, you know, this is where the world is now and I'm just the old, you know, grumpy guy who is missing it or something, but I don't know. I, but then look on Twitter. Everyone's grumpy. Yeah, I don't want to be Absolutely there. everyone. <laughs> uh, I, and I think, yeah, I just think there's no room for ambiguity and ambivalence on the internet. And that's the nature of reality. That's everyday life. Like, you know, the people you care the most about are probably the people you have the most fights with, too. Yeah. And I resent so much the way that Twitter and social media asks you to think in binary ways because I can't yeah. do it. And then I feel like because the message that I get from it is that I'm somehow failing because I don't have like moral clarity instantaneously. I'm like, no, that's it. That was me at that back in 2016. Like that was the greatest source of pain for me. I think it was seeing these people who could sum up exactly what they were about in one line. Like, right. and it, now when I look back on it, I'm like, that's completely ridiculous. I think it like reaches its peak horror in Tinder bios where, you know, you're expected to kind of stake your entire future on someone, like a picture and a line. Right. Right. And what do you, I mean, I th like that, all of that missed me. I met my wife just before like the dating apps took off. So I never experienced that except in literature. You know, I, I read about people's experiences of it and. I mean, that's got to be its own special hell. <laughs> I don't know. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know that it can be, I know it can work. I have friends who, you know, happily married, have kids, met on a dating app or whatever. I'm not saying that it doesn't sometimes yield meaningful relationships, but I can imagine that if you're single and trying to meet somebody and you're just sitting there swiping, that it can, can be sort of like a drug and but like a, you know, like a bad drug. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you say about reading Twitter, because I'm in a similar position. Like I made a real point at the end of um, the book to not go down the like Jaron Lanier route and tell everyone to delete their social media. I mean, like there's nothing wrong with that. Do it if it suits. But it's more just that I've been a journalist for nearly 10 years. And I think, you know, these things help us in our careers and they give you like They've come about because the world is deeply unstable and employment is not like a certain thing anymore. Um, but they're still like they are valuable tools for helping you, you know, derive some sense of security that you have your contacts or something like that, you know. And then there's the whole issue of much younger people who have just grown up around it and it would be unnatural to them to not have it. And I'm not going to pretend to fully understand that, you know. So I'm not going to tell anyone to throw away their phone. Like I got, I did this event last week and I spoke about how during the lockdown, I used this app made, I think it's made by botanists called PlantNet to learn about plants all around me and trees. Oh, right. Um, it was after reading Jenny O'Dell's book, uh, uh, how to do nothing, how to do, how to do nothing. And right. I, like near the end of it, she kind of advocates learning more about place, about kind of immersing yourself in the place you're in, learning about the trees and the birds around you. Um, I don't see anything wrong with using technology as an educational tool there. Like I wasn't advocating walking around, you know, stick, sticking your head in your phone the whole time as like nature passes you by. But the minute I said that someone else on the panel just was like, gotcha, you know, you're not a Luddite, <laughs> you use a plant app. And I was like, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I'm not saying we should go and live in cabins in the woods. I mean, we can, um, but not everyone is able to do that. 
And why not make use of like why not make use of technology and why not agitate for it to be more humane and less rapacious after so many years of it just being completely kind of unregulated, really? I mean, I'm from Ireland, like we've given them tax breaks for over a decade. Right. You're out that they call it the Silicon Isle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or the Silicon Bog, which I discovered while researching the book. That was a brief period. They must have uh, worked very hard to get rid of that branding. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say, Isle sounds more elegant. <laughs> yeah, it really does, doesn't it? And we have the Silicon Docklands as well, which is where I set one of my uh, essays, the, the Night Gym. Uh, right. That was in the Silicon Docklands. So you said you're not advocating for everybody to move off the grid into cabins. I might be closer to doing that than you are, but good for you. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But I do want to make note of the space that you're in because I'm seeing okay. stone walls. Uh, where are you right now? I feel like we should talk about this. This is going to sound unbelievable and ridiculous. I'm in a Martello tower, like in James Joyce, although it's not the James Joyce one. That's a little bit further down the coastline. So there are these big towers. They look like they're built by uh, a particularly talented child playing Minecraft. Is, it, is uh, this in Dublin? Yeah, it's in Dorky in South Dublin, Flann O'Brien country. And it's, it, it's thanks to the owner of this tower and the house attached to it, who I don't actually know at all, but who is a fan of my boyfriend's work, Rob, who was on your show as well. Rob Doyle. Um, Rob Doyle, yeah, whose book is about to come out, by the way, in two days' time. Whoa. Autobibliography, yeah. Um, little little hidden promo there. But uh, thanks to her being into his work, we were invited here for a few months. So, um, yeah, I'm living in a tower. It may be a little echoey. Uh, I haven't seen any ghosts yet. It was. I'm expecting to. I, I hope I do. Um, they were built to defend against Napoleon and the coast of Dublin, coast of Ireland has these towers kind of dotted all the way along it. Bono used to own one with a cannon. Thank God he no longer has access to it. <laughs> Sold the place. Wow. So do you have like, are there windows in there? I do see some natural light, I think. We have little turrety windows, like for shooting arrows out of. Okay. So, you, but you can like look out and see the water. Is that what you see or? Yeah. The water's on one side and the lovely shimmering lights of the Dublin uh, at night are on the other. And is it the heated? Sunset, is it heated? Sunrises are beautiful. Yeah, actually it has wonderful heating. Um, I think they had the whole thing kind of renovated, you know? You would have to, I would imagine. Yeah. Right? I think what? it would be quite bitter and miserable otherwise. As it is, it's like a luxury Viking kind of vibe. Um, yeah. And also, this is going to ruin everywhere else I ever live in my lifetime. Right. It just will never be as nice as the tower. The tower is, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I'm like, yeah, and there's nice art. I'm seeing art on the walls. And everything. Yeah, the art is uh, from uh, Finnegan's Wake. They're uh, pages of Finnegan's Wake. Oh, wow. Okay. That well, have been drawn on. Has it been inspiring to live there, like to writing wise? Or are you just kind of like, is, are you actually just like luxuriating and getting nothing done? <laughs> I'd say it's a mixture of the two. Rob's been very productive. I, yeah, I mean, I'm actually a few thousand words from the end of a first draft of a book. I have no idea where it's going. It's a novel. I don't know if it's worthwhile or not, but isn't that the nature of the thing always? Right. right. Um, there is a slight challenge, though, of how do we live up to this? You know, we're in this beautiful environment. How will what we write ever be worthy of the grandeur of the tower? Right, right. With, yeah. with the Joyce legacy just a little down the coastline, down the road. You yeah, know? no pressure. Um, no pressure. No pressure. No. <laughs> Well, I want to draw attention to something that you mentioned in the book that sparked a memory for me because I, 
I am 95% sure that I read this years and years ago and that it had a very mixed impact on me, but it was the 1996 or it is the 1996 Tom Peters, uh, essay or, uh, piece in fast company called, uh, the brand called you. So, you know, you, pl- again, it's important to place it in time. 1996 is, you know, f- f- from a popular perspective or a mainstream perspective, pretty close to the dawn of the internet, you know, in terms of like most people being online and starting to use email and stuff. And already this guy was talking about everybody behaving as though they are their own individual brand. And, uh, this has been a point of contention for me for most of my adult life. I bristle at this. I, I, why do I resist so much? I'll pose it as a question to you. Why do I bristle so much at this idea of thinking of myself as a brand? I find this so depressing. <laughs> oh, it's hideous. And the tone of the article is so hysterically, like, gleeful. You know, he seems to be saying that, like, all job security and even the sort of inherent humanity and dignity of work will just be thrown out the window and we'll all have to fend for ourselves. And isn't that wonderful? I look, I don't even know how I learned about this article because, well, I used to work in social media marketing, like in an ad agency. I I wrote about it in the book. I, I represented a brand of cheese for a year and I would just talk to people as cheese. And during that time, I did a lot of research on, on social media and on the kind of various philosophies that were behind it. And they were always these... Uh, what I'd call business ebook men, uh, you know, buy my business ebook and, and sign up for this newsletter. And then he like gets your information and spams you for like 20, 20 years or whatever. And, you know, SEO was this kind of magical dark art and they would promise to help you. But then by the time you mastered it, Google would change its algorithms or whatever. Like that whole area fascinated me so much in part because it seemed to imply that, you know, your success in life and your sense of self, everything could be hacked you know, and obviously none of these people were actually hackers. And the other part of it was, yeah, that there was this kind of eerie psychological subtext that it it kind of makes sense that something like Squid Game is being made now, you know, like there's a direct line between the the vision of life that is in something like Squid Game, or for that matter, Battle Royale, um, and a brand called You. It's all like survival of the fittest, but also the most disingenuous the most opportunistic the yeah the most resourceful i'm kind of getting very abstract here i should probably just talk about what the article is it's yeah it's saying that you know we we're going into this brave new era online and everyone is going to have to exist and stake out a place like land for themselves on the internet everyone is going to need to make a name for themselves um and it did strike me as fascinating in part because it's kind of horrifying you have to turn yourself into a brand and market yourself like a brand but also in rapid kind of succession all those things fell into place you know uh you had the blog era you had the sort of irony that came out of that the obsession with authenticity like a thing that was in my book originally but which got cut out was i wrote a lot about Taolin and about the website hipster runoff and like when Taolin and altlet were kind of on the rise and then imploded so quickly and Taolin survived it and I've listened to him on your show as well but I found him so fascinating it didn't end up staying in the book but to me he did that really 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 well and in a way which retained mystery because he was so cryptic at the same time 
But then, you know, we move away from the blog era. Facebook basically gives people too lazy or uncreative to make a blog for themselves or a creative identity the opportunity to do exactly the same thing by just filling out a form and signing up to their networks. And now we're in, you know, this sort of domination era where there's been this corporate takeover of the internet. And I think every step of the way, what these services have done is offer people a way to create a self on the internet. It's very literary to me. Like self-fashioning is a literary concept and the internet is largely a text-based culture. Everyone is fashioning selves on it. But the difference is it's, it's all mediated through the biggest corporations we've ever known. And now AI and this idea of you know, prediction. So we're basically always just being trapped in what we did in the past. We're never evolving. We're never being challenged. We're just stuck in filter bubbles. Another book I'm, I'm reading right now, actually, because I'm going to do an event with him soon, is uh, Grafton Tanner's new book. And it's about nostalgia. And he talks about that, how algorithms basically trap you in a kind of ideal self in the past. I think that's what's going on. We, it's very hard to break out of unless you just dispense with the thing entirely. And just to place algorithmic scrolling into the context of history, this shift happened in 2016, correct? No, earlier, earlier. Actually. Earlier. Um, it all shifts. So 2016 is interesting because it was the year of the algorithmic timeline, which I think I put in the book as well. But it, it was the year that we stopped seeing things as they were happening. You know, there was this whole kind of idea at the beginning of social media, and it's in I Hate the Internet in a good way, I remember, where they sold themselves as revolutionary and that they were citizen journalism, that there was this social value to joining up to something like Twitter. But by 2016, they realized that if we just give people what they want to see based on what they've seen in the past and we do away with that sense of chronological reporting, we'll actually retain them further and we can build this kind of comfortable bubble to let people live inside. And very soon after that, you see the political implications of that. You see like extreme divisions along the way. But to me, that's fascinating because it's like our whole sense of time was skewed, how we were, you know, perceiving reality and news and, and even events among our like close circle of friends. Everything was completely openly being mediated now by algorithms. Okay, but that, and that was 2016, am I correct? That was 2016, Okay, because yeah. that is momentous. It is, yeah. That yeah. feels very momentous to me, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. And I, before reading your book, did did not know that that was the time. I mean, just as the 2016 election is taking place, people are becoming siloed in their algorithmic timelines, being fed yeah. posts and stories that both what confirm their biases, but also agitate them and keep them on the platform, whatever platform they happen yeah, to be on. It's so funny how, I mean, even when we think back on various scandals that have come out with social media, like I always think of just the term Cambridge Analytica, you know, that like there was this kind of fear cultivated around Cambridge Analytica, but it's like, no, Cambridge Analytica wouldn't exist were it not for Facebook. Right. I'm, I'm trying to remember what year was the, uh, the leak about the emotional contagion study where they were openly manipulating the emotions of their users. And then most recently we have that, that leak about teenage girls and you know uh, psychological damage being brought about by Facebook. It seems so obvious. How could something this powerful ever not have those effects? I don't think too, though I think it's coming to light more and more each day, people realize how sadistic these companies are. They have profited hugely while knowingly pumping people 
full of toxins, basically. It's like it's yeah. very much like cigarettes. It's very much like the cigarette companies, you know, in the whole uh, what was that Michael Mann movie with Al Pacino's in it um, and Russell Crowe about the 60 minutes, you know, expose on the cigarette and tobacco industry that kind of broke it open. But, it, you know, it reminds me like the times that we're living in now, hopefully we'll, we're getting to a point where there's some kind of critical mass and people are becoming aware that they've been jobbed, you know, and that they themselves have been made the product because we haven't even started talking about data. You know, we're just talking about, now we're Uh just talking about algorithms and agitation and all the bad feelings that come with it and, and the skewed reality. But on top of that, these companies are surveilling you. You, you sign up to their networks and then they start watching you and then they track every single thing you do and sell that data to other corporations that then prey upon you in advertisements or whatever it is. You know, I don't even know how the, all the myriad ways that my data might be used to, (laughs) I don't know, it freaks me out to even think about it, but perhaps you have additional uh, insight there. No, probably no more than the average person. I mean, I did a ton of research on it though, but the the place that I kind of took it in the book was to, uh, it's latent horror you know it's potential for horror this idea of the this fractured self existing on servers you know like a a doppelganger that's something i'm obsessed with at the moment just the kind of whole cultural phenomenon of the doppelganger but in the context of the internet that's exactly what it is it's a digital doppelganger you know the the image that always i always come back to is the idea of the shadow profile on facebook where even if you resist and you don't actually sign up they'll create an outline of you and they'll gradually fill in all the details just by, you know, getting your friends. Like that's how these algorithms work. It's, it's not about like listening in on your phone, although I'm sure that does happen. I mean, there is like evidence of that happening and it being shared with third parties by Apple even. But, um, you know, the, the slightly more immediate threat is the fact that they are predicting your behavior based on your connections, based on this kind of big web that you are part of to the point where they know you better sometimes than you even know yourself. But that that self, that kind of digital doppelganger, is built entirely on your behaviors within that system. It's a vision of your future based on your past. And it's laden with all these biases and commercial interests. And, you know, I think we've yet to see, but in coming years, we will see how these things are actually coming back onto us, how they're shaping our reality off the screen. Because I suspect they are. I suspect they're limiting us. They're, you know, clearly emotionally manipulating us. And I thought it was a funny thing for me then to end up, and I, I put this at the beginning of the book because that's that's the time in which it happened, but I got diagnosed with emotional instability, you know? So I have a kind of lifelong mission now of managing my emotions. So I'm more sensitive maybe to this than the average person. You know, I have to be. And this thing is just there always waiting to make me have extreme feelings. Right. The ideal user of these services is someone who is emotionally unstable. You write wonderfully about Mark Zuckerberg, who is the most successful social media uh, CEO from a capitalistic standpoint. I want to get into the kind of common threads that so many of these CEOs tend to have. We'll start with their interest in biohacking. I think of like Mark Zuckerberg talking about how much he loves meat 
Have you seen these videos? That's a personality trait, liking me. I feel like it's kind of a thing among the kinds of bros that I'm talking about. They love, they like have an unusual passion for mate. <laughs> and they also have this kind of, uh, you know, performed austerity. There is the Jack Dorsey, like one meal a day fasting plan, the, the like seven mile walks to work the guru's beard that he has and by the way this austerity like you said something that i thought was very astute where you're like you know some aspect of like to give an example jack dorsey's fasting and you know denial of self you know denial of self or whatever has to do with guilt i thought that was a pretty astute psychological read that i hadn't fully thought about before but you then go on to describe the clothing and of course like by now it's like uh we think of the tech CEO and what do we think of them wearing? It's always mm -hmm. like a, a hoodie and like sandals or whatever it is. You know, it's always like very dressed down, very simple kind of austere wardrobe. And it's also a uniform. They wear the same shit over and over again. And there's menace in that. <laughs> Let's talk about the menace that lives inside of these kinds of calculated self-presentations. When you say menace, it just made me think about, did you, did you see the TV series Devs? No. It's a Alex Garland. It's about quantum computers, but it, it absolutely captured that menace. But yeah, in my book, it's a similar, uh, like, like uh, that there's a Bruce Sterling phrase, uh, gothic high tech. There is something kind of monk-like and sinister about that extremely controlled austerity. I mean, there's a few different ways to look at this with Dorsey. I see an eating disorder personally, but I'm not in any place to diagnose that. But like I lived with that myself for nearly, probably about a decade, actually, give or take a year or two. And um, it's all about control, isn't it? You know, and it's all about fear and trying to find control in little bits of your everyday life to satiate like that, to, to feed, well, to help address that fear. Um, yeah, when I see Jack Dorsey, I mean... It, it kind of peaked a few years ago where there was that article calling him the, the Gwyneth Paltrow of Silicon Valley. And <laughs> it just looked like someone running from his own reality every single day, you know, immersing himself in icy water and near infrared saunas and one meal a day and walking nine miles. It also kind of reminds me of um, this story, this kind of horrible story that I had to study in college by Flaubert on Cursant. You know this one no. that ends with the parrot flying over the woman, uh, but she's like she's kind of becoming a saint. It's like the self abjection of the saint, and she's this like scullery maid who is depriving herself and withering away. I think he's just withering away in plain sight. Um, I think like in the book I have this chapter then called "Bland God Notes on Mark Zuckerberg," and it's about then the figure of Mark Zuckerberg. But I, I, there's a kind of, I see like Dorsey and Zuckerberg as two sides of the same coin. Like in the middle of them, they both share the fact that they are at the head of this vast, like kind of force of cosmic horror in terms of its vastness, in terms of its power, its ability to shape the world, its ability to do all the things that they claimed they were doing when they started out. Like, we're going to change the world. Are you really? Are you prepared to, to handle what happens? When you change the world, when everyone looks to you as the person who changed the world, are you really ready for that? And then you see someone like Dorsey who just looks insane, frankly. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the answer. No, no, he can't handle it. He needs to go on a silent retreat. No shade of people who go on silent retreats. I'm sure it's really good for you. And 
probably like judging from listening to me you can guess I probably wouldn't do very well <laughs> on a silent retreat you never um, know you never know maybe who knows people change um but with Zuckerberg I think it's kind of the opposite he embodies that cosmic horror he is the blandest human being like he's basically a sim He's like a character from The Sims walking around. Like he's barely even a person. Um, but uh, that's the thing he's crafted. Like I'm not trying to attack him here. I'm saying the public image he has put out is just one of the ultimate generic normie. The ultimate like his clothes. They're yeah, they're normcore. I, I write about that. Like that word. I love that word. Um, and it seems fascinating to me that you know he has dedicated his life to mapping and anticipating human behavior and everything that makes us human while refusing to let us know anything about himself. Maybe there is nothing there. Um, in the book, I compare him to the whale, like in Moby Dick, you know, this kind of void of whiteness. And when you get close to it, it blinds you because it's incomprehensible. Um, but ultimately like the, the question at the center of the kind of core of that essay is this question of like, it's like Kanye, like no one man should have so much power. You know, what does it mean when, when someone has that much power, specifically psychological influence? When someone steers that ship, um, what becomes of them? What's the inner world of Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I mean, the metaverse. He's a blank. Yeah, the metaverse. We're all going to see in the next few years, perhaps. Well, you talk in the book about how this, you know, they all dress down, all these tech CEOs, you know, they. It's like this, like, uh, it's like fuck you outfits. Like they don't have to dress up yeah. for anybody. And it's also a way to conceal their will to profit and a way to sort of look like they've transcended their wealth. You know, like uh, I think there's yeah, even and like they work hard. Yeah. You, wait, you want it, Do you think they want to indicate that they work hard or they want to look like they oh, don't? Yeah. I think Steve Jobs set that model, like this whole idea. Do you remember how kind of much they like magazines like Fast Company would fetishize this idea of executive decision making? So he wears a polo neck every day so he can save his executive faculties for making big decisions. Right. Like, you know, the obsession with like this is self-optimization before self-optimization was even a thing. You know, it was plotting out everything that your energy would be devoted to every single day. And now today we see it in its kind of grotesque parody of Elizabeth Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, um, <laughs> with her like voice and her polo necks and her uh, will to power. Yeah, that's I mean, that was a crazy that. Did you see that documentary on HBO about her? I'm listening to the podcast that is following the trial. I didn't see the documentary, though. And I read the book as well. Oh, OK, well, I mean, so you're steeped in it. But I just I watched that documentary and was just like, oh, my God, this is like the stuff of my nightmares and not surprising also. And, you know, you talk about Zuckerberg or any of them, you know, they all have their trademark outfit that they wear every day. And part of it is like, you know, wanting to seem, you know, normal. And I think maybe most importantly, it also is a way of projecting a kind of blandness so that we don't pay attention to what they're actually doing. You know, you want to, if you're just walking around in Adidas sandals and a hoodie, I, this guy couldn't possibly yeah, be fundamentally decent, inoffensive. <laughs> right. Like if you go around dressed like some kind of vampire deviant person, I mean, no one's going to trust you to helm this like engine of cosmic horror and power <laughs> and, right. and be the richest person in the world um in so many ways like zuckerberg's dress sense has set the tone for an entire generation like i see it playing out in how people much younger than me dress you know and i think it's got to do with 
the thing he created, which is like surveillance capitalism. I mean, it was, it exists in other forms as well, but it's the fact that like, if you're going to always exist under surveillance, you want to look as blameless and generic as possible, you know, like, so I, I'm 32 years old. And like, when I was, I went to like, okay, I, I would still like be into kind of weird, like vintage clothes and stuff. And I don't really get the whole sportswear thing that just everyone wears now. Like, but I had this kind of weird experience this weekend. Uh, I went to my first, uh, the first kind of gig in Dublin for, I'd say like two years or whatever, post COVID it's all back now. I still felt a bit uneasy about it, but then I've had COVID. So I guess I, I am the new flesh. So right. <laughs> no going back. Right. Uh, and I have the vaccine. So oh. <laughs> total mutant here. I was going to say, um, speaking of transcended, like, look, look oh, at you. You're, oh, you're, uh, you're, you're, te- you're shedding, Teflon. I'm sh- <laughs> shedding the vaccine everywhere I go. It's great. Um, and uh, yeah, picking up Wi Fi from all those tests up the nose. Right. And, yeah. um, but no, so we went to this gig and like, it was a mixture of kind of people in their thirties, people in their twenties, maybe even a few younger, but like, it was so generationally different, you know, like the norm core thing isn't even norm core. Like that was originally called trend, but I think like, that's just how everyone dresses now. Extremely kind of cartoonishly normal. I think COVID, I think COVID has had a huge impact. Everybody just being at home all the time. There's no reason, no compelling reason when no one's going to see you except you know, I guess from the waist up on Zoom or something, but people That's just... I, in the book, I describe my wardrobe of freelance slob wear. I basically like live in yeah yoga clothes and stuff and in days off. But then like now, especially because COVID stuff is relaxing and especially when the book was coming out, I was like, no, give me drama. Because I think when you look at it, you'll notice like, especially in Ireland in the literary community, there's this kind of studiously austere worthy style of dress where everyone just wears jumpers and like glasses to look like a writer. And I was just like, no, I want drama. I I want like, like I look at pictures of Truman Capote and Joan Didion and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Dressed up. Yeah. Wear a suit. I mean, guys used to look a lot better. I got to say just on an average basis, everyone used to wear suits and hats and stuff. And well, it's all about bodies now. I noticed that at that gig as well. It was, um, what's his name? Jeff Mills that the Detroit DJ came over. Um, but there were definitely men who were fond of their meat out that night. Um, fond of their what? Their meat? their meat yeah. yeah meat as personal trait yeah you could see it like they were all these big hefty people um you could tell <laughs> they were into MMA and all that what is it i mean because i you know i mock these things and recoil from these things but i also pay attention to these things same same yeah yeah, yeah. and I mean, so I'm it's like you know there's a like i feel like tim ferris is a purveyor of a lot of this stuff he's a little bit more benign i feel like he's I feel like there's as much menace in him, but he's a guy who has a big influence on these CEOs, I think, because he's sort of yeah. like the kind of like the Tony Robbins on acid. You know, he's like the Tony Robbins, but he does psychedelics and he's trying to hack every damn thing and give you a competitive edge. I think that's the part of it where I get most depressed, where I'm just like, ugh, ultimately all this is, it's not about wellness. It's about beating somebody else. <laughs> it's like, a, oh yeah, it's, it's about, about winning. Yeah. Domination. And quantification as well. And I, I think like, it's funny because, so I'm, I'm like back in therapy right now. <laughs> I decided this was the year I would do this. So I was like seriously all in and stuff. And I used to think, 
all of these things in myself, these traits, like, because I share a lot with those dudes, those meat dudes. Like, I used to want to control, quantify, track every aspect of my life. Like, I was the biggest control freak. And it was as though I was there in reality, but I wasn't. You know, I was never fully present because there was always like a counter running in my head. Like, oh, you did this today, so you have to do this. Like, you have to spend an extra hour on the treadmill or something. You know, all this nonsense. And, uh, you know, ultimately that's not very rewarding and I burned out on it and went through various other things and I'm very different now, but, um, I relate to it. You know, everyone wants to control, everyone wants that little bit of feedback from their watch telling them, oh, you're a good person. You burned this many calories and took this many steps today. It's like what these things are offering us is validation, right? Like they're, you know, reminding us that we're on track. And Um, also like. I think people are trying to optimize themselves. They're, they're like suffering under the pressures of their lives and under capitalism and under whatever it is, like relationship pressures, work pressures, and trying to improve and like relieve that suffering. And I think people are like, well, maybe if I eat one meal a day or if I, you know, go kill a deer and eat the venison that I myself killed, you know, like somehow... This is going to be the elixir that will help me like perform better, but also feel better. And it just seems to me like a bottomless hole. Like it, you never, yeah. or like a mountain that you can't summit. Maybe that would be the better um, analogy. It's like, you're never going to get to the top. And then there are the dudes who have sort of built brands for themselves. If I may use that term as the kind of gurus, you know, like I'm the guy who knows this shit and I'm like a a walking, talking laboratory of self. And if you follow me, you're going to get an edge because I'm going to share all the cool information with you. It's never ending. And and these dudes are cashing in. It's consumerist. Right. It's all fundamentally consumerist. So it's there to make you think that if you get the thing and you anticipate it, you'll be a better person. And then you get it and you instantly forget and want something else. It's it's a funny one because like, it, you can do it long term. It can become your whole life, and you might actually have quite a like fundamentally good life. I suppose you'll always be a little bit unhappy and wondering like, does someone else have something that you don't have? Right. But like lately, I'm trying to disentangle myself from all of these processes. I mean, I always thought of myself as fundamentally anti-capitalist, but like, I don't know if I was actually living that way. You know, because so much of what's offered to us as self-improvement in any kind of way, even that term is so loaded. All of it comes laden with these like you know, desires, these drives to basically spend money and participate and make oneself more appropriate to a hyper-capitalist society, you know? And, and like, gender comes into this in such a big way as well, isn't it? Like, all the meat men and the, the girlos, like, um, or that's an Irish Irish word, I suppose. What, um, yeah, what, what is the female equivalent? I'm thinking of the Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know if, I feel like maybe Sheryl Sandberg, because Elizabeth Holmes is sort of peripheralized now that, um, what was the name of her company? I'm just blanking on it. Uh, Sandberg. Oh, Holmes, Theranos. Yeah, no, Theranos. Maybe... Now that Theranos has sort of, you know, been exposed, she's kind of been peripheralized. But you have like Sheryl Sandberg as like a preeminent tech woman. She's not eating venison, is she? <laughs> what's, what's she no, doing? She's just peddling a polite white feminist version of like revolutionary politics. Um, she's like making women, making feminists, like taming them so they're fit for corporate life while convincing them that they're actively still feminists. Um, no, I think, like, I would say the female equivalent, there are kind of two. There's the, like, hyper-artificial, like, version of femininity, which in ways I think is kind of fabulous. But then there's also this 
horrible, like the sneakier version, I think, which is that girl on social media who shares like, you know, their perfect life on Instagram and is apparently creative and cares about these kind of new agey things like meditation and yoga and eating well. But also it's like kind of tyrannical and a recipe for self-loathing and, you know, relies upon sharing every aspect of that enlightenment that like state step, you know, a journey to enlightenment has to be shared and Instagrammed every step of the way. What a fucking um, nightmare that is. I yeah. Mean... And it's lately, it's also occurred to me that like so much of feminism is basically in cahoots with social media and surveillance capitalism. And I'm really kind of troubled by it because I, I think a lot of men are scared that women will report them to the internet. And I kind of, part of me thinks that was useful for a while, but also I'm viscerally just kind of horrified by it because like feminism existed long before social media and doesn't need it to exist. I feel, so, yeah, I, I feel scared. I think, I think most people, if we were really investigated and scrutinized, wouldn't pass the test. You know what I'm saying? Like, or, or very few of us would. And, uh, you know, I think there are some instances where, and this is where it gets complicated. There are some instances where it's appropriate, you know, and it's actually healthy for there to be some ventilation. That's and some... the thing. Yeah, that's the thing. That's when I sound like a pathetic centrist. You know, because like, I have to admit there have been cases where because we exist with like power concentrated to such a degree, wealth concentrated, these work kind of as emergency mechanisms for questioning power. Right, right. And that's good. And that can be good. But I've also seen situations, you know, unfold where you can sort of get caught up in it, in the drama of it, in a kind of salacious way. And it's oh, sort yeah. of, you know, these things flash, they, they rise up and it's very loud and very loud. And then they go quiet because it's on to the next thing. And then afterwards I'll have a sort of gross feeling like I drank mm -hmm. a monster energy drink or, you know, which you write about just to, just to weave that Sticks one. To in. The teeth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you yeah. know, it's that, it's that sort of icky feeling afterwards where you're like, what was that? And like, was that right? Like, and whatever happened to that person who may have like committed like a serious infraction, but who was nevertheless a human being. And like, are they just going to, are they gone now? Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I have That's those thoughts. That's the part of it all. Like, no one's ever really gone unless they're dead. And then they're even less gone than most, I would suspect. Um, nothing like dying to make you well-known. Um, that's very morbid and creepy. But uh, <laughs> I do think, like, we are moving towards questioning these things. It's taken a lot. Like, we've gone through a lot in the last decade um, in terms of our on mass like our relationship to social media and the faith that we place in it as an agent of creating justice in the world i don't think anyone sees that anymore i think there was a period when people were a little bit blinded and they did genuinely think something would change well, the, and arab, that it was the arab spring remember the arab yeah. spring there was <laughs> yeah. like that was like maybe facebook's pinnacle public relations moment where it was like yeah. facebook helped to create this youth revolution in egypt and it was like uh. saving the planet right and yeah he said that he created it to give young people a voice during the Iraq war. Uh-huh. And like... Never mind the fact no. that he, he created it so that, like, you know, frat boys could judge the appearance of girls on campus, right? Wasn't that the... Exactly. That was the oh, origin yeah. of Facebook. It was created out of human lust, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, misogyny, essentially. Um, but, like... <laughs> 
I think everyone, I think that tide has turned. Like, it's not blind optimism on my part to say that we all know and we all feel that little bit icky. Like years ago, I would meet people who never got the feeling of a bit icky. They were like living their entire lives and their careers that way and never once questioning it, probably canceling one per day on average. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you've got to, I think it's like you've exactly got to, it's like a ritual sacrifice. You've got to like, we've got to cancel one per day just to like feed the gods. The internet demands it. <laughs> Otherwise the internet won't be back in the morning. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, I think that is gone. And I think the next step is, like Jenny O'Dell writes, and think it's a little bit there in my book. I mean, I kind of, it's more kind of what came next after the disconnect ends. But I think we are moving towards prioritizing the human and the immediate. I'm not going to be one of those people who says like, oh, the, the pandemic changed everything and we're all local now. I saw that happen to some people and I tried to make that happen for myself. I'm not sure if it really did because God knows we were all on Zoom all the time. So there's only so far a walk in the park can really take you. But I would like to think that eventually we're not going to, you know, rise up against these platforms and destroy them. But even look at the way that Facebook is going, you know, uh, making the world more open and connected. Maybe they still say that in-house. I don't know. But I'm not sure anyone really cares about Facebook, the product anymore, or sees these as genuine connections. Like they always use that word connection. I don't think anyone like has any faith in that now, or if they do, they're misguided. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think some people like the more like run of the mill, maybe older users of social yeah, media, yeah. like they use it to just like look at pictures of like their nieces and nephews and grandkids or whatever. And maybe that delivers a sense of connection. Like, well, this is how I keep in touch with my family, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But exactly. for the more, I think what, the more constant and sophisticated user who's like really integrated into these platforms, it becomes a lot more and a lot less than that kind of at the same time. Um, yeah. And I thought one of the things, you know, there's something that you write about in the book, which uh, piqued my interest because I, I hadn't heard it before, or if I had, I'd forgotten, is this idea of God view. You, you know, we've spoken about the power that has been bestowed upon these social media CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg. Like just, like he can look at... Uh, community of what 3 billion users how many people are on facebook nowadays i don't know how many it is i think is. it's around 3 billion but then like the numbers change when you count things like whatsapp and instagram oh right so he's got he's got a god view of yeah. of humanity essentially mm -hmm. and they're processing data on every single user and they're able to crunch those numbers and get a feel for trends individual behavior. I mean, I don't even know how all of that works, but I can j just thinking about it a little bit gives you kind of vast ideas about what it could mean. <laughs> um, you know, if you have the right computer scientists and the right data scientists like working on it. Um, but like that part of it wasn't a surprise to me because it was like, oh yeah, of course they have a God view. He's got three, you know, billions of users to, to sort through their data and to make decisions accordingly. But the part of it that that got me was the fact that what they're selling to the average user is a very um, truncated God view, like a very small, tiny God view. That's what these platforms afford all of us. We all have our little mini God view of our little timeline and our little collection of friends and social media associates. Like, can you talk a little bit about that and how like how it affects the user, the average user. 
Yeah, it's it's funny thinking about it now. It's as though social media has so much in common with those uh, civilization games, like where you can have a God view too, you know, where you have this little community and you watch them grow. I think the view that Facebook affords its users in particular, it's so inherently solipsistic because you've got this menu of people who you can pick up and put down again. Like you can just take up a conversation with them and then just put it away the minute it gets boring. And I think we all understand that. Like, you know that that part in a conversation online when you watch like the dot, dot, dot appear and then they drop off and they're just like, they can't be bothered anymore to right. talk to you. Um, I think, they are seeing... I think I want to say, cause you just, that really is like a very common human experience that doesn't get articulated very, very much, which is even when you're texting with somebody you're close friends with or a family member, there's a point in the text where it's like, oh shit, like who's going to extricate first? Like who, who's going to end this? And like, how are we yeah. going to end this? And it's like, it's like you want it to be artful and delicate and I don't want them to feel like I've just walked away, but I also don't want to feel like I've been walked away from, you know? I know, I know. And I was always someone, when I got my first phone, I remember, I was always, I've, I've always been someone who tries to write good text messages. Yeah, me but too. I'm, yeah, it just feels important, doesn't it? Like this is this little opportunity to write something good like that gets sent to a friend or someone. And um, yeah, it, I'm much more comfortable with what I guess is called like asynchronous communication where it's not as real time. Like I'm really uncomfortable with WhatsApp. I don't have it. I don't like it. I've, I've never got really used addicted. it. It's awful. I, I hate that. Like it's that pressure of communicating in real time. It just freaks me out. That, you know, so they are seeing you on a menu of people and you are seeing them on a menu of people and you never see yourself on the menu. You are just the god of your world on Facebook and everything is tailored to you algorithmically. Right. So simultaneously, yes, well, it is kind of connecting you with the world, but it's connecting you with the world on these skewed terms, you know, where you expect everything to be exactly what you want because algorithmically it's conditioned to be that way. And your, your behavior is being shaped to fit with this little cohort of the internet that you're on, like your circle. But it's not connecting you with the world. It's connecting you with like a kind of enforced sameness of self. Um, but yeah, and I think just that fundamental like selfishness almost that's at the heart of social media that it panders to and feeds and cultivates in us. I think that goes a long way to explaining how people behave on these platforms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's side by side with retail as well. Like it's, it, this maybe seems like a bit of an odd place to take it, but like Facebook, you know, is full of advertising. Twitter contains advertising. Instagram's full of advertising. So essentially like our personal lives and our lives as consumers have never been so closely intertwined. They're basically one and the same now. And, you know, on Facebook, pictures of our friends are being used to sell us things. Like, that's part of how Facebook works. It uses, like, recommendation constantly to sell things. So it's as though consumerism has just, like, infected us on this really deep level, like, how we relate to each other now as well. And it feels consumerist to be able to just, like, dip into these relationships and then just leave them, you know, and constantly judge them, like, like them or not like them. Right. Right. It reduces every, it, it's reductive to me. It just feels like it cheapens these interactions and we sort of fool ourselves into thinking that we're, we're really communicating and in truth we're, we're not, and, or at yeah. least not fully. And it, it, it reaches, oh, sorry. No, it just bums me out is what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, it, 
No, it, I, oh yeah, no, it, it reaches its kind of apotheosis in, in, I think, in Tinder. I think in dating apps, like not things like OkCupid back in the day, but modern dating apps where, you know, you basically have a second to assess someone and then you just throw them away. And I think that's why like incels and, you know, these deeply misogynistic online communities have formed because these guys understand that they are disposable. What's interesting is that they've copped on to something that all of us should know, which is if we live this way, we are disposable. We make ourselves disposable. Like we're only good for our data. It's like soil and green, you know, <laughs> like we are what it's made of right. and they have absolutely no interest in our welfare. Okay. Cause I was, I wanted to get to this next is that, you know, you, you, write about your experience with these dating apps and something that really struck me in this section of the book was how dating app CEOs never admit that they have a huge hand in creating the future of civilization, you know, from a procreative standpoint, uh, relational standpoint. I mean, this is really how a majority of people, or at least a lot of people, especially young people try to meet. A, a life partner these days, right? I mean, they're on these apps and they're swiping. I know everybody gets sick of it. I mean, I ha like, like I said, I this missed me just because of my age and generation and life circumstances. But I've heard enough people talk about it over the years to talk about how like they do it for a while and then it just becomes annoying and depressing and they stop and then they might go back, you know? But um, that said, there's enough of a user base and these things have become pervasive enough that they're having a huge impact in our mating rituals and dating rituals and how like the future of humanity is going to sort itself out. And that level of responsibility is not cop to. Yeah. And the side effects are truly disturbing because I would see a direct correlation between like what I was talking about just there and then like mass shooters, you know, and, and also on a less dramatic level, just extremely, troubled people out there in the world you know doing various things having various influences on on other people's lives i kind of took this from berardi a lot like franco bifo berardi's he's this book called heroes where he kind of draws a line between dating apps reality tv mass mass shooters like online misogyny hikikomori uh, all of these things and i mean i guess like the common thread is this competition the urge to win and i think it also maps onto things like um the meat men and the quantified self and all of this stuff because it is all about looking for control um so then you get you know these people trying to win dating apps um trying to work out what exactly that would mean you know does it mean meeting one person and forming a really like rich rewarding relationship with them or does it mean just getting loads and loads of likes, loads of attention, sleeping with loads of people. Um, I mean, that's fine if you're into it, but just like this very kind of consumerist approach to, you know, just throwing them away afterwards. And, and then it goes to this deeply paranoid place of like men trying to create formulas for winning where, you know, they're never good enough and you basically just can't win because ultimately it's not you versus other men, it's you versus the system. You know, and you'll never feel good about yourself. It may not even occur to them that what they're looking for is to feel good about themselves. But when you go on their communities, like the incel communities, it's so blatantly clear that everyone there is deeply, deeply depressed. And you think, and that's an interesting line to draw. I'd never made that connection. It's like, it's like these dating apps have had a huge impact on a certain subset of the male population. 
and have bas- they basically have become aware of how disposable they are, and at least in in so far as this system is concerned. Yeah, I mean, what's the term again? Black pilled. Like there are degrees of it. There are some people who are just peak nihilist, and then there are some who are just casually, but they maybe they still have faith that they can win this thing if they just get you know a joy implant and take some creatine and <laughs> level up. You know, um, they, some of them are blatantly enjoying it. They're probably psychopaths. Who knows? <laughs> right. I wonder about that. That's the thing. Like that whole that whole scene of like, you know, fasting and ice baths and saunas and like muscle building <laughs> like it freaks me out i there's like a it's like a religion you know i feel like that's what it is it's like a certain kind of guy who's drawn to that and they get completely integrated in all that stuff and uh i don't know how much that's tied to incels are there a lot of incel dudes who are that way like they're they're, they're... very looks obsessed definitely yeah. it's interesting too i mean this is such a kind of smarmy obvious point to draw but like I do think in our time right now, men are going through what women have had to deal with since time immemorial, you know, which is basically having to accept that you'll never be good enough by this standard and you'll either like run the race or after a certain point, you just give up. And then when guys give up, I guess, I mean, giving up in, in a way that seems kind of positive, you get out of the race, like get out of this stuff stop like delete the dating app like maybe giving up is what they should do if they want to be like happy and lead lead a more meaningful life but i also wonder is it a kind of breaking point that could be like you know when they when when they get to the point of wanting to give up is that maybe a dangerous place (laughs) i yeah i don't know actually i mean there are definitely those whose version of giving up is violence um but i'm i feel like i'm currently in not giving up but just placing my faith somewhere completely different. I'm in that stage in my life. Like I'm far from giving up, but I just am acutely aware that the things I need to concentrate on and devote my energies to don't exist in the service of this big money God, this big tech God. Like, And it, it, it sounds like I'm putting it on. And I suppose like when I was writing the book, it was slightly me trying to manifest that like into reality that I would stop caring about pleasing the internet. It has happened though. It absolutely has. Like I just, so much has happened in my life in the last year and so little of it is on the internet. Um, so it definitely does work. Like it's, I guess it's something you have to kind of force yourself to get used to maybe like cut yourself off for a while, but you can definitely stay on these platforms and not be addicted to them is my point. Like that's definitely where I am now. Um, I'm still, you know, as obsessive as ever. And arguably I just obsess over different things today. But the internet doesn't hurt me the way it used to. And seeing other people succeeding or like seeing other people being really decisive and, you know, uh, being celebrated for their extreme opinions, like that doesn't really puzzle me or disturb me or hurt me the way it used to. Why? Because uh, maybe, you know, maybe it was actually the effect of the book and just having something exist on paper that like speaks to my own identity that, you know, I gave something to the world, which is what I always wanted to do. And you know, it was always this kind of torment. Um, <laughs> um, and now I'm back to square one because God knows if people believe I can write a novel or not. I was writing novels before I wrote The Disconnect, but when I got my agent, she was like, oh no, you should pursue that. And I did, you know, but writing definitely steps in and becomes rewarding and, you know, cultivating just presence in the real world and trying to learn more about the world around me. 
Okay. Um, that's what I've been doing for the that, last year. I was going to say, because you said you had to place your faith in something aside from the internet money god or whatever it is. So you're, you're placing your faith in like more present moment awareness, more like actual lived experience, working on creating literature. Am I yeah, missing and, anything? No, that's it. Yeah. And, and also just dismantling all my own compulsions, you know, trying to gain perspective on these things. Writing a book will do that, absolutely. But there's so much more kind of woven into, you know, how I perceive the world. And I just want to question everything, essentially. I, it's the absolute, like, it's basically plunging headlong into the gray area of life, which I believe is life, you know, right. Me and too. getting rid of black and white thinking. Right. I, I, I could not agree more. I think, uh, I don't understand how there's any, like, it, it creates anxiety in me when people get into binaries. I have this conversation all the time, but gray the gray area is where I live. And mm. uh, I want to ask you if you're sleeping. Are you sleeping better? You look well-rested. I think relatively okay. I think, yeah, genetically, I, I, I seem to not need sleep. Apparently, when I was a baby, I was an insomniac, mm. which is just bizarre, but apparently that's true. Uh, it's probably why I didn't grow very much. I'm like five foot two. Don't you need sleep to be tall? I, I don't know. Anyway, you do, you um, do grow, I think, in your sleep, especially as a child, yeah, right? When you're sleeping. Yeah. But um, there is, I should say, because I've, uh, I've studied, I've actually studied this for a work thing. There is a subset of the population and it's very small. So I want to make sure to underscore that because so many people lay claim to it. And I think most of them, it's inaccurate. But there is a subset of the population that can function on less than five hours of sleep a night but it's like one percent or you know a fraction of one percent and most all of us need significantly more than that but maybe you're maybe you're this uh unicorn well, you know? people always hold up the example of margaret thatcher but look how she turned out i mean this is the thing it's like elon musk he's kind of held up as a as a you know uh, a version of this and like he doesn't seem well to me, <laughs> you know, <No>. like <laughs> seems like he's he a mess in some ways. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem like he's very grounded. Like no. he has that kind of slightly unhinged quality, which comes from like depriving yourself of the basic fundamental things that we all need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, I think like once you read about what lack of sleep does to the average person's health, I mean, it's, it's terrifying like at least whatever modern science has been telling, you know, me and these books that I've been reading, like if you don't sleep well for a while, like your cardiac health, your yeah. mental health, your respiratory health, like everything, it just starts to break down. I mean, it's really, and your memory. Yeah, it all goes. I mean, it's, so it's like, and not only that, but like, you know, I'm 46. So if I don't get a good night's sleep, like I wake up and I'm like, I look old <laughs> you know and like i was gonna say i'm too vain not to sleep these days uh, it like, makes a huge difference good. it makes a huge difference uh on how you look if you get a good night's sleep nothing um is better for a person's appearance i think than being well rested mm. yeah what got me like the reason the whole kind of idea behind wanting to write about sleep and insomnia and that specifically in relationship to technology was this idea that like sleep might no longer be an escape you know, that sleep could be, people would attempt to control it through technology. And that like, also, 
obviously like it's there in the monster energy essay too but this idea that like the body in the age of machines has to mimic machines so that even when we talk about sleep which should be the great kind of switching off from all of these like things um we still are trying to kind of prove that we deserve to exist in in the rat race you know that like we can have optimized sleep right we can sleep efficiently you We've know got like the best. ceo sleeps yeah like, <laughs> i've got like um, a, i've got an oxygen chamber and i've got the best sleep app that monitors you know that i'm getting all the different sleep cycles and i think what's funny about it is that at the end of it all you know you obviously have to have a lifestyle that's conducive to getting good rest you know you can't be drinking like you know a six pack of monster energy drinks in the evening and expect to sleep well but there like the the more you kind of engage with sleep and sleep science and the more you learn about all of it it can get you all worked up and then at the end of it all it's like pretty simple live a lifestyle that's conducive to allowing for some rest and then don't worry about it too much it's very yeah. easy to get worried about sleep once you know about what lack of sleep can do to you. And so you sort of oh. have to like learn all that, understand it, reckon with it, and then let go of it and just sort of relax. <laughs> yeah, you have to learn it the hard way. I think sleep is um, like I, I've never been addicted to a substance, for instance. Like I've always turned kind of apparently normal, natural things into problems like food or like exercising or just worrying about like aspects of my life. Um and sleep is, it, there's like, I heard the term sleep anorexia or no, like time anorexia or something where you can't allow yourself to like enjoy just having time or you can't relax enough to just sleep. You know, it's interesting. Like sleep is this canvas for all our anxieties. And in the essays, in the book, I kind of try to explore that in terms of like these kind of capitalistic and techno uh, te technological like forces trying to kind of project onto sleep. But it, I couldn't say... I definitely sleep more now, but I'm still, I still have a weird attitude to sleep, like I, or a weird relationship to it. Like I have the weirdest dreams and I talk in my sleep endlessly. I don't sleep very much, but I do sleep like consistently these days. Yeah, I was just thinking about it because like I went to see Dune yesterday and it, you know, have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. I haven't. I want to see it though. Oh, it's great. It's so good. Um, it opens with just this voice and a blank screen saying, dreams are messages from the deep <laughs> and that day i'd had all these weird dreams and i was like oh god what is this <laughs> i don't you know i don't i can't argue with that i'm sure it's got something you know there's something to it i don't i don't know if it means oh, yeah. everything but uh yeah. i just i don't know last night i my son woke me up and so i had to i sleep with him that's usually what happens like we have to develop a system because if he's six so he's pretty big <laughs> and if he's if he's in bed with both my wife and I, then neither of us sleep. So I'll just be like, I'll take him, and then uh, my wife goes down to like the guest room and sleeps. And he was just oh. he was kicking me, and he started crying in his sleep, like to the point wow. where it woke me up. Like he was clearly having a dream, and uh, you know I didn't sleep that great. But the thing that I'm supposed to do, I know, is to not obsess about that and just relax and try again tonight. <laughs> Have you ever seen the documentary, The Nightmare? No. It's amazing. It's about sleep paralysis. Oh. Um, and it contains all these different testimonies. And they all have this thing in common of the kind of shadow figure at the end of the bed. But the real kind of Cronenberg-y, like the kicker in the whole thing is that the more you think about 
sleep paralysis, the more likely you are to get it. Right. Like the more you worry about it, the more likely it is that tonight you'll wake up and you won't be able to move and the shadow figure will be at the end of your bed. Um, I think I think the same could be said for insomnia. That's like the, yeah, that's absolutely. why it that's why it perpetuates. You go, "Oh shit, I'm an insomniac. I can't sleep. I can't sleep. Oh my god, I'm so worried." And then you lie in bed worrying about it, you know? That's the yeah. letting go process that's got to happen. But um okay. So, I don't want to give away I don't like to spoil books. But I want to make sure people know that in a way, this is kind of a happy story. It's a moving book. Like the, I'll say this, the ending moved me and it leaves on a bit of a high note and a hopeful note, which I appreciate. Um, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of damage that's been done uh, and a lot of things that need fixing in our world, clearly. But you have some hope at least that we can evolve in a better way knowing what we know now. Do you? Is this true? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was always there in front of us all along. You know, it's a bit cheesy to say, but I think it's true. And, you know, if anything, my experiences are testament to how powerful an anxious mind is, that it can completely narrow down reality to the point where you give up on life itself. But if you you do kind of choose to change, you absolutely can. Like I've seen, <laughs> I sound like I'm just like taking shots at critics now, but I saw a review recently and it was really positive. It was lovely. Like I'm so grateful for it. But they, the thing that they said that was critical was that I had grafted on a happy ending. And it's like, I get that narratively it sounds like it's just convenient, but that is really what happened. I started the book completely uncertain of where my life was going to go and how it was going to end. But it did end with a conscious stepping away from a phase of my life. You know, it, it really is just a journey from extreme loneliness, not just like not even just kind of in terms of not seeing friends enough or whatever, but just isolation and alienation of the mind to just consciously stepping away from it and taking a chance, you know, and also changing my life in various ways. The writing of the book itself helped to really kind of solidify these things. Like, I just know now what I'm not, you know, and I, I, the thing that I thought was my identity, it absolutely is not the case. It is the result of all of these forces outside myself. It is the emotional cyborg issue where part of this is just technology. Part of this is what you choose to immerse yourself in every single day. And if you take action, you can have a very different life. You know, it does all come down to perception and what you're doing with your time. Um, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, you know, and I'm not saying this magical Instagrammable enlightenment arrived because it really didn't. I have all these other things that I'm focused on now. And, you know, I have problems and I have moments of great happiness. But the difference is I feel like I'm on a track. You know, I'm on the right track and I'm putting my time into things which to me seem worthwhile. So... Yeah, it's, but it's, it's funny. I mean, like we're all changing all the time, you know, it's just about taking, taking action, like taking kind of control over how you're changing and resisting being changed by things which aren't in your best interests. I hope you're making use of that tower on Instagram to make everybody jealous of your perfect tower life. And I haven't put it on the on Instagram yet. What a wasted opportunity. You could be like, I, oh, I, hey, hello from my tower in Dublin. I know. 
I should do. But the thing is, it's so big. How do you take a picture of a tower? It's called a wide angle lens, I think. You just I need have... a drone. Yeah, you need a drone in your tower. There you go. Just you. I need an army of drones. <laughs> and uh, I think there's something, the word simplicity comes to mind. Maybe that's something that we've learned or some of us, or maybe I've learned this. Maybe other people have had this thought as an offshoot in particular of the pandemic. But like, it, it, I guess the question is like, does that speak to you? Like has part of you coming out of this dark place had to do with simplifying your life at all? Or is it different than that? Definitely simplifying my priorities. Honestly, um, one of the things that's helped me in a really big way is doing yoga. Like sure. the body is this massive theme in the book, you know, like this kind of biopolitics of technology of like how it plays out on the body and how it, it, this kind of logic of anorexia to me seems to have infected mainstream culture in a different way of just never being good enough and always wanting to control everything. And simplicity is absolutely the solution to that because like the core kind of message of yoga is to unite the body, the breath, the mind you know, and to just kind of flow, like, isn't that what yoga ultimately is about? Um, and when you get, when you kind of pursue that for a while, I mean, for a while, you're just kind of showing up, but then you gain this resilience in yourself where you can't just be sort of blown away, you know, by something. And when you're in touch with your body, when you actually kind of grounded and centered, because the thing that used to be in my life in a big way was a kind of horror of being alive. You know, like that song, um, oh man, I'm being so cheesy, sorry. I think it's in the song, In the Airplane Over the Sea. Do you know that song? By the uh, um, Milk Neutral Milk Hotel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I used to listen to when I was like a teenager. Um, but that line where he goes, how strange it is to be anything at all. You know, like I was living in fear of that all the time. So if I stopped for a minute worrying about something online or about my work or how I looked or anything like that, but... If I stopped for a minute, I would have to confront the immediate reality of just, I'm alive. I'm in the world. There's a poem by Elizabeth Bishop that captures it really well, too, called In the Waiting Room, where she, she talks about the feeling of almost falling off the edge of the world as she confronts like the reality that she's a human being, she's alive. But once you stop running from that and start thinking about it in a more positive way, that, you know, it's not actually a terrible thing that you will die one day and, and that you're in a body right now and that time is passing and reality is happening to you. Maybe this is something that comes naturally to a lot of people, but it didn't come naturally to me. Um, but once I stopped fighting that, I didn't need technology to kind of enforce my identity anymore. You know, I didn't need that escape anymore. I could just sit with myself. How much yoga are you doing? Try to do it every day. Some days it's an hour. Some days, today it was 45 minutes. Some days it's only 20 minutes. Okay. Um, but I do feel like it has passed that point where it's crept into my daily life. Are you a yoga person too? Yeah, I have been my whole adult life. And like, I don't want to be like a proselytizer. But this I, is the thing. It's always a risk. Like I'm so wary of even talking about yeah, it, but exactly. it's such a fact that it benefits you. I also call it, if I, we can put it in a different context that might be a little bit more palatable and cool is like, I always joke. I'm like, it's like, like if you do a good yoga practice, it's like taking a bong hit, but you're not paranoid afterwards. Yes. Or uh, like doing mushrooms. Yeah. I honestly think they're very comparable. Yeah. Like after a good one, when you get into Vasana and you're just like, 
wow. Wow. I'm in alignment with everything. And I'm quiet and I'm, 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 um, what's the word? You know, you're in your body, you know, like, yeah. like you were talking about, you, you start to feel like you're an embodied uh, being. Oh, completely. Or there was this, I remember watching this sketch, uh, John Mulaney of like, my body is just a thing that carries my head from room to room, right? which I found so relatable, yeah. but like, it's, it's funny. Cause I used to really think of that as my identity. And now I, I don't really have panic attacks anymore and I don't take my meds anymore. And it's not just, I'm like, I've stopped taking my meds. It was like, <laughs> they were as needed, you know, yeah. um, but I don't, it doesn't occur to me to do that anymore because I have this entire kind of toolkit of stuff that I can just do instead to that address is your meds. the anxiety. That, but, but the thing is, is that the yoga is your meds. Like if you, yeah. if you stop doing it, watch what happens, <laughs> exactly. you, you know, exactly. like I've noticed that the more I kind of delve into reading about yoga, the controversies seem to go really, really deep. Like there are all these conflicting messages about like, cause there is, there are all these arguments that like India exported yoga. Like they kind of took the ancient thing, but then they remade it for export. And the other thing I've read is that it peaked with kind of anxiety building to war that like it was about training young people to be strong in case war happened, hmm. which is so at odds with how I imagine yoga. Like I genuinely don't know anything about this, by the way, but it's, I've had a weird kind of uh, like coming around to it because I went to this school as a child that, um, it's called the School of Philosophy, but we, they, we, they taught us yoga and they also taught us meditation and Sanskrit and like ancient Greek. It was very alternative. Wow. Um, and, but then when I got out of that school, I kind of rebelled against all of these things and went really heavy into, you know, living in London and working in social media and being really cynical about everything and like experimenting and, you know, all this stuff. But it took ages to kind of let my guard down again. And go back to this thing, which essentially makes you be really sincere, you know, and risk looking like an idiot and also risk looking like you have terrible hamstrings, right. which I still feel a little bit of paranoia about yeah. trying to get over it. Yeah. Um, but no, once you... you do get past that, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like there's still some embarrassment involved, like just like walking to a yoga class in Los Angeles as a guy like me, like just walking around with a yoga mat, you're like, oh, I'm that guy. People driving by are just like, <laughs> look at that fucking guy. <laughs> I know it, but I have to just let it go because I want like, that bong hit, you know, or whatever you call it. Gotta have that bong hit. It's good. <laughs> the stretchy physical bong hit. Um, but like, look at, look at fucking gym culture. Like, how dare anyone laugh at yoga when they're literally running on a machine? Right. Like, when they're... And doing like when I first joined the night gym and, and even before that, I was going to the daylight gym and I would do these weight machines that only build one muscle. So you end up with like one popping out bit of your arm <laughs> because you've, you've not trained your whole body. Like it doesn't even make sense as a way of exercising. Why would it's techno solutionism is what it is. Like you have everything you need. Just do body weight exercises. Don't do the lat machine and then the bicep machine or whatever. Like none of it makes sense that's a good tech what did you say techno optimization oh techno solutionism it's like you know we yeah. have a machine for that are your lats lacking <laughs> right. we have a machine right all you need is a mat and uh you know an hour, an hour yeah and your breath and you're good well i'm happy that you're doing well uh, especially in light of all that you describe in the book where you weren't doing so well and i think this is a really valuable book for people to read like even if they're 
even if they haven't swung to such extremes or gone as deeply into it, I think it speaks to the way we all live now. And I think too, you know, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, you know, you can get pilloried for this in the same way you can get pilloried for saying you do yoga. It's like, I think there's something healing about writing a book. If you do it in good faith, you know, like you're trying to understand and you're trying to be trying to get to the truth, you know, quote unquote, Mm. that's certainly been my experience. It doesn't make life perfect, but it does have like a real healing effect. And it seems like this has been the case for you to put it down on the page. And I hope selfishly, since uh, I'm now like a, a fan that you will remember that and keep doing uh, this kind of work because, um, you know, we need more of it. That's so kind. And I, yeah, I'm really glad you picked up on that because it's, it's definitely, it was definitely a mission in writing the book, gaining some kind of perspective, which possibly, you know, we don't have in everyday life because we're in the moment and it's happening to us, but writing gives us perspective on things. And I'm really, uh, taken with like, the most old school approach to writing an essay of all, which is like to try, you know, like, like that whole Montaigne thing, like I know nothing right to go in just knowing nothing and curious and then just exhaust that curiosity as take it as far as you can be honest with yourself, be honest with the world around you and with your reader and uh, see where that can take you. It it was, and I, I really do think as well that like, if you are honest, then you don't have to worry. You know, you have nothing to hide, even if you don't find an answer by the end, which is almost certainly what will happen or it will be complicated. You know, you'll still know that you did, you you just did the job as best you could mm-hmm. and you furthered some kind of like, I, well, here's where I get all mystical and all, but like the sort of, you know, alternate reality of, of the written word, like, like in Yeats, you know, like Byzantium. Or, or in T.S. Eliot, he talks about tradition. You know, this idea that, like, literature will outlast us all and it, it has a sort of sense of time all its own. And if you're sincere and you interrogate and you don't just try to kind of meet some trend, you know, or impress people, then you will have contributed to tradition and what comes next will be altered by you in some some tiny way, probably. But, like, that's what I'm doing it for, you know? Well, that seems like the perfect place for us to end. Congratulations. Best of luck on your novel. Can we get any hints about what what it entails or is it still too early? Paranoia, doppelgangers. I hope it gets to print. I really do. Okay. Well, I do too. And I wish you well on it. Best to you in your uh, Irish tower and best to Rob as well. We're, we're going to declare war on Bono's tower soon. We're, the cannon is coming in the post. We got uh, one on Amazon. So. I have my money on you guys. You guys are vicious, and I know you will destroy him. Ro- yeah, Rob has the war spirit. You know, don't leave <laughs> Rob with a cannon for long. He's a dangerous man. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, listen, it's great to, to meet you, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing whatever comes next. Thanks so much. Okay, you guys, there we go. That is Roisin Kybird, and her book is called The Disconnect, A Personal Journey Through the Internet, available from Serpent's Tale, a wonderful press over in the United Kingdom. 
believe they're based in London. Once again, the book is called The Disconnect. You can find Roisin Kybert on the internet. Follow her on Twitter. I believe her handle is at Roisin Kybert. Let me double check that. Yeah, that's it. At Roisin Kybert. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? Hey, it's the holiday season. If you listen to this show and you liked it and you get something from it and find it beneficial and nourishing and all the rest, you can support the show. It's a listener-supported show because the entire archive of this show is free. I make it all available, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes, all accessible to listeners for free. So I'm counting on your support if you can swing it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this thing rolling. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Again, for as little as a dollar a month. That's it. Just throw a dollar in the hat every month. Three dollars, five, ten, twenty, and so on up the scale. There are different tiers, different levels of support as you move up. The uh, scale, you can get stuff. A book club membership, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. Annually. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at other PPL.com. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It too is free. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app. Search for it by name wherever you get your apps. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? Subscribe. It's free. You can listen to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at otherppl.com. 